been there. That if I just said it right, if I just had the right piece of evidence, I could convince this person that Scripture is true. And what we learn from this study of John 5 is that way of thinking is wrong. That that type of thinking has always capit- has already capitulated to human viewpoint rationalism and to a concept of truth and validation and authority that is contrary to the Bible. And what happens when we argue on the wrong basis is that we in some sense denude the gospel of its power. For at the very core assumption of our thinking, we are placing our absolute authority on the autonomous validity of reason or experience. We must remember that a wrong thing done in a right way is wrong. And a right thing done in a wrong way is wrong. And a wrong thing done in a wrong way is wrong. Only a right thing done in a right way is right. And this is what we see exemplified in how Jesus answers the Pharisees in this particular section. Let's review the context a minute. Jesus has healed the sick man at the pool of Bethesda earlier in this chapter. This is the occasion for this entire discourse with the Pharisees. And he did it on the Sabbath. He did it intentionally on the Sabbath. His healing of the lame man or the cripple was, was uh, very quiet. He did not walk in with his entourage of disciples and create a scene in the midst of the pool of Bethesda. He quietly walked in, walked over to the man, whispered in his ear, do you want to be well? Do you want to walk? And the guy, yes, yes, of course. So Jesus said, get up, pick up your pallet and walk. And then Jesus disappears into the crowd. The man doesn't even know who he is. Jesus went to the temple. The man, in response to the law, because he's been cleansed, has to give sacrifices of thanksgiving. So he walks all the way through Jerusalem, or at least the the distance, probably a mile or so, from the Pool of Bethesda down to the temple. And he is going to give, give his thanksgiving offerings. And on the way, he's carrying his pallet in direct violation of the Mosaic Law, which, as we saw in our study, that passage forbade the carrying of any load I mean, you couldn't even wear false teeth on the Sabbath, much less pick up your pallet. I didn't even know they had false teeth back then, but obviously they did if they were forbidden to wear them. So we learn from that 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 religion is opposed, we see in all of this, that religion is opposed to grace because that is the principle of the Sabbath, that God has provided everything for us and we can rest and relax in His provision. And the uh, religious traditions of the Pharisees and their practices are totally antagonistic to grace. So religion opposes grace, and religion is antagonistic to Jesus. And as soon as they find out who it was that healed this man, they immediately uh, go to Jesus and have a public confrontation there on the steps of the temple. And a crowd gathers. And in in this scenario, Jesus engages the Pharisees in a very powerful discourse where he claims very clearly that he is God. Don't let anyone ever try to tell you that Jesus never claimed to be God. Jesus claimed to be God in very clear ways. If it's not obvious in the English, it's because we've somehow lost something in translation, but it's very clear in the Greek. And you can always go to passages like what we saw in verse 18, that the Jews understood what he was saying, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, But he was also calling God his own father, making himself equal 
with God. They understood the implications of what he said, even if uh, we do not always understand the implications of what was said. And Jesus went on from verse 19 on explaining what it meant for him to be equal with the Father. And his equality with the Father was not an equality that was insubordinate, but an equality that was subordinate. That Jesus voluntarily submitted himself to the will and plan of God on earth so that everything God said, he said. Everything God thought, he thought. Everything God worked, he worked. And Jesus did not operate independently of the Father. Now that brings us down to our discourse beginning in verse 30. And now that I have a new pair of glasses to wear, we're going to correct something I said two weeks ago. This is very important and I slopped up on the Greek so we're going to straighten things out. Because this is a very intricate argument that Jesus is presenting here, and there appears to be a contradiction in the text. So we have to look at John 5.31 here. Jesus says, if I, and the New American Standard, and I think accurately adds the word alone, whenever you see italics, that indicates that the translators have supplied a word in the English to fill out the sense of the Greek. They're not always right. But it's, it's not there in the original language, but it's supplied in English in order to get, make this sentence make a little more sense to us. If I alone. Now, that's, the reason that's added is because up to this point, Jesus has been talking about if the Father does it, I do it. If the Father says it, I say it. If the Father thinks it, I think it. If the Father judges, I judge all of these statements that Jesus has made, and we saw that there are five verbs used of the Father and the Son identically in each sentence to show that Jesus is claiming to do the works of the Father on earth and claim that He is equal with God. So He's not independent, but dependent upon God. So when Jesus says, if I bear witness of myself, my testimony is not true, our natural inclination is to go to this on the basis of what the Mosaic Law says, that on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses, uh, a point is established. But that's not what Jesus is saying here. He's not referring to the fact that the law calls for two witnesses. He's making another much more important statement. I want you to see that there's a little bit of a contradiction here, and we want to clarify it, between John 5.31 and uh, John chapter 8, 14. John chapter 8, verse 14. Jesus is in another confrontation. We're going to see numerous confrontations between Jesus and the Pharisees. And here in John 8.13, they say, You're bearing witness of yourself. Your witness is not true. Now there, they are claiming that Jesus' witness of himself is invalid because it's a, a lone witness. This is in response to Jesus' statement that I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in the darkness, but shall have the light of life. So the Pharisees say, your witness is not substantiated with a correlating witness, so you're a liar. And Jesus responds there, and he says, even if I bear witness of myself. Now, even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true. Let you just stop there. In John 5, he says, if I alone bear witness of myself, my testimony is not true. John 8, he says, if I bear, even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true. So in one place he's saying, if I bear witness of myself, it's true. And in the other place he's saying, if I bear witness of myself, it's not true. 
Doesn't that seem like a contradiction to you? Well, let me explain. It's based on a very simple difference in the Greek. We have a third class condition in the Greek, which is indicated by the first word, which is the particle aeon, E-A-N. Now, an aeon plus a subjunctive mood in the verb always indicates a third class condition. Third class condition is a pure, uh, a condition of pure hypothesis, and it presents the condition as uncertain of fulfillment, but still likely. There's various nuances, and we don't need to get into that. When Jesus is talking in verse 31 of John 5, he is saying, If I bear witness of myself, my testimony is not true. In other words, if I bear witness of myself independently of the Father, that's the nuance. That's why the New American Standard Translator added that word alone. He's saying, if I bear witness alone, independent of the Father, then my witness is not true, it's invalid. Because his whole argument has been saying, I am equal and united with the Father. If I go out and witness independent of Him, then I've invalidated my, my testimony. So that's, that's the nuance there. Now, when he, in verse 31, I mean in verse 14 of chapter 8, and he says almost the same thing, he uses a different construction. Instead of this first word, E-A-N, aeon, what you find in the Greek text is this word, K-A-N, which is a combination of chi plus aeon. K-A-I is the Greek uh, conjunction for and plus aeon. Okay, this is a contraction then between these two words and the A-I here and the epsilon there are dropped out and so it's just reduced to K-A-N. Now this is a very, very subtle point in Greek. Now this isn't a Greek class, but I want you to show that every... What Jesus said, every jot and tittle is important in the original language. When you have the chi plus aeon, it transfers the Greek third class condition from a simple condition to what's called grammatically a concessive clause. And a concessive clause is translated and even if, or and though, but even if stresses that difference. And there in John 8, Jesus is saying, and even if I witness by myself. He's not saying that his witness is alone, but he's saying even if I bear witness of myself, my testimony is true because I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I am going, where I come from and where I am going. So this little difference, the addition of this word, to that John 8 passage changes the whole thrust of what Jesus is saying. So that clarifies the fact that there's no contradiction. He's, he's making a similar statements, but they're dealing with different contexts. Back to John 5.30. Let's look at this. You're in a situation, you're witnessing to somebody, and they say, well, what's the basis for your authority? How can you prove that what you're saying is true? This is the same scenario we have right here in John 5. Jesus is confronting the Pharisees. He's just made this claim, this audacious claim, that He is God. He is 100% deity, undiminished deity. That everything the Father does, He does. What the Father works, He works. That, in fact, 
just as the Father continues to sustain the universe, Jesus Christ is continuing to sustain the universe. Just as God the Father is the architect of the plan, God the Son is the one who is carrying out the plan. This is what he has said, and the Pharisees are challenging him. What is your basis? Define your authority. How do you validate this claim? Now, what we would do is what it seems like Jesus is doing starting in verse 33. We would claim to some, we would appeal to some independent authority. But as soon as somebody asks you to validate your statement is true, how do you prove it's true? You immediately come to the question of what do you mean by prove? What do you mean by true? And on what basis do you have a valid argument? What type of reasoning are you going to use? See, the very formulation of a statement, prove this to be true, assumes a whole host of information that usually doesn't ever enter into the conversation and that you've never thought about and the person you're talking about has never thought about. But that's what's being brought to the table is an underlying concept of what constitutes proof and truth. And so you're here, and the person you're witnessing there is too, is over here. So you have the unbeliever here, and you're the believer who's witnessing, and this unbeliever says, prove it's true. Now what this unbeliever is doing is on the basis of his human viewpoint thinking, is he's saying he's got some autonomous concept of truth, and he's saying substantiate that your position conforms to this autonomous concept of truth. And so what we do is we say, okay, I'm going to appeal to some authority. You're going to go to Josh McDowell, or you're going to go to Paul Little's book, Know Why You Believe, or you're going to go to C.S. Lewis, Mere Christianity, or some book like that that gives you evidences for the Christianity, and you're going to say, okay, I'm going to prove that what I've said is true. And you're going to appeal, at that moment, you're either going to use some form of logical argument under rationalism, are you going to try to prove from historical data that the tomb was empty, that Jesus rose from the dead, or that Jesus was who he claimed to be, on the basis of experience or empiricism, that your claims are true? Now, it looks like that's what Jesus is doing in verse 33. He says in 31 and 32, I, if I alone bear witness of myself, my testimony is not true. There's another who bears witness of me, and I know that the testimony which he bears of me is true. Now, that refers to the testimony that's going to come up of the Father in verse 37. But in between, he appealed to John the Baptist. And what John the Baptist did in his ministry as the forerunner of the Messiah. And it looks to us as if Jesus is appealing to the authority of John the Baptist. But he's not. Notice what what Jesus says in verse 34. He says, But the witness which I receive, is not from this ultimate source of man. Now, if he was trying to validate his, his witness by John, then he wouldn't say that. But, he said, but he's using John by way of concession to illustrate the point that John came witnessing and you sent out an official delegation to check out John to see if he was the Messiah That's verse 33, you have sent, and we saw that the verb there was apostello, that's important, we'll come back to that in a minute. You sent out this official delegation to John to check out his credentials, and he gave his evidence, 
and you rejected it. That's the thrust of what Jesus is going to say here. You, you were curious, but you were negative, and you rejected his evidence. But by way of concession, we're just going to start there. You rejected this human witness, but the appeal that I have, the witness that I'm going to appeal to, is much greater than that of the human witness, John. My witness is, is God the Father. And that's where we're going to get, get to in verse 37. The principle, though, that we're going to establish in all of this is if we try to prove Christianity in a non-biblical way, see, Jesus is not going to appeal to them on the basis of reason or experience, which is a non-scriptural basis for argument. If we try to prove Christianity in a non-scriptural way, then our proofs are invalid and not scriptural. Jesus is not going to try to prove on the basis of human systems. Why? Well, we went to the example in Luke. And we saw that when, when in, the, um, in the story of Lazarus and the rich man, which was a true story, it's not a parable. A parable, you don't have named individuals. A parable is just a fictitious narrative to illustrate a point. But this is not a parable. You have Lazarus, who's the beggar. This is not the Lazarus who later is uh, uh, resurrected from the grave. You have Lazarus and you have the rich man. And Lazarus is a believer, and the rich man is an unbeliever. And they both die, and Lazarus goes to Abraham's bosom, which is part of Sheol or Hades. Hades has two compartments, Abraham's bosom and torments. And in between, Scripture says there's a great gulf in between. That means they're separated, and there's no, you don't go back and forth from one compartment to another. So the rich man ends up in torments. He's in fiery torments. He, he, wants, he begs Abraham or Lazarus to give him a drink of water because he thirsts. And he appeals to Abraham and he says, let, let Lazarus go back. Give him life again. Let him go back and talk to my brothers. And tell my brothers. If they know the suffering I'm going through here. In other words, if Lazarus is raised from the dead, you're going to have a, all this empirical data to prove their claim, the, the truth, that you have to trust Christ as your Savior. Or you're going to end up in the lake of fire. And what they need is overwhelming empirical data to convince them of the truth claims of Christianity. Now, isn't that the trap we all fall into? That if I just have something to appeal to, boy, if we just had a miracle. See, miracles were never designed for that purpose, to convince somebody of the truth of Christianity. They validated the claims of Christ, but they're not given to prove them in this sense. And what does Abraham say? Abraham looks at the rich man and he says, if they won't accept the testimony of Moses and the prophets, they won't accept the testimony of Lazarus. What's he saying? That the Scripture conveys such power and authority in and of itself because it is the Word of God. It is self-validated. It is self-authenticated. That if they don't believe the Scriptures, it doesn't matter how logical your arguments are and it doesn't matter how overwhelming your empirical data is. The issue is not reason. The issue is not experience. The issue is volition. And they have rejected the truth. So it doesn't matter because the issues are spiritual. They are not mental. They are not on the, the issue is not intelligence. 
The issue is not experience. The issue is spiritual. And they have exercised negative volition. They have rejected God, the knowledge of God and God consciousness. And they have gone on to reject any gospel claims. And so, if they don't accept the claims of Moses, they're not going to accept the claims of anybody who raises, who's raised from the dead. It won't happen. And this is the underlying verdict here. And what I want you to understand from all of this that we're discussing is I want you to go out from here this morning with a tremendous confidence in your ability to witness to people, to explain the gospel to people. Because it's not based on how well you argue. It's not based on your understanding of all the evidence or your ability to answer everybody's questions. Because all that is subscribing to the concept that the issue is reason or experience. The issue is, can you clearly explain the gospel because it is the Word of God that has power. It is the Word of God that is self-authenticating. And it is the Word of God that is self-validating. And if somebody rejects the gospel when you present it to them, that doesn't mean they won't accept it later on. But if they reject it, it has nothing to do with you or your inadequacies. It has everything to do with their negative volition. The issue is for you to present the gospel and to present the gospel as clearly as you can. But it is God the Holy Spirit who is the sovereign executive of evangelism who takes the words that you use and makes the gospel clear to the individual, and then they exercise their volition. And no matter how clearly you present the gospel to many people, no matter how much evidence you amass, there are many hundreds of thousands, millions of people that will never be convinced until they are raised from the dead and at the great white throne judgment are convinced of the deity of Christ. And it is then and only then that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But it's too late for them. And they'll spend eternity in the lake of fire. Your confidence needs to be in the Holy Spirit and in the Word of God and not worry about any inadequacies or lack of knowledge on your part because the issues are not based upon your skills, your argumentation skills, your knowledge or anything else. That doesn't mean you put your brain in neutral. That doesn't mean that all you have to do is get a sandwich sign announcing, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved and walk around town and that satisfies God for witnessing. No, you engage as we saw Jesus engage Nicodemus in conversation and he discussed different things with him. Nicodemus was an intellectual. And so when he discussed things with Nicodemus, he challenged his intellectual foundations of knowledge. When Jesus had a conversation with the woman at the well. She was just an everyday person. She had different issues. It was not the academic discussion there that we saw with Nicodemus. It was a much more down-to-earth discussion. And Jesus said, pointing to the water, she came to the well to get water and said, if you knew who you were talking to, you would ask me and I would give you water that would never dry up. Jesus' offered, Jesus' conversation with her is, is down-to-earth and he engages with her and he answers her questions and discusses the issues with her. So it's not that we just announce to people that Jesus died for their sins and call that evangelism. We do get engaged in conversation. We discuss things with him. But the issues remain. All you need to know is the basic gospel. Make sure that the issues are clear. Know the key scriptures. Know you should memorize five or six key salvation verses. 
like Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, uh, John 3, 16, John 3, 18, John 3, 31, uh, Romans 3, 23, Romans 6, 23. You should have those memorized. They should be uh, in your uh, armament so that you can use that whenever you need to witness. Now, this is the move that Jesus is making here. He is going to appeal ultimately to the self-validating authority of Scripture. He references John simply because John was a human witness and they had rejected John and they had rejected uh, John's witness about Jesus Christ. And that brings us down about to where we stopped the last time in John 5.37. And what we are going to see here is the kind of move that Jesus is making as a model for us in when we witness with people. We've seen one example with Nicodemus. We've seen another example with the woman at the well. Now we're going to see another example. And you see, each time the dynamics are different. Just that each time you give the gospel with somebody, it's a different person. They come from a different background. They have different questions, different problems. And so we have to just know the basics and then flex with the situation. What works with one person isn't going to work with another person because they're different. They're coming from a different background. We just have to understand the basics and then rely upon the power of the Word of God and the power of the Spirit of God. But Jesus makes some very interesting moves here because, see, most of us, what we want to do when somebody challenges us in witnessing is we immediately go on the defensive. Okay, now I'm back on the defensive and I've got to prove my claims are true. What Jesus does is just the opposite. Jesus goes on the offensive and Jesus shows that their position is unsupportable. Jesus is going to show that they can't say what they say and be consistent with their basic assumptions. So let's look at verse 37. Verse 37, he appeals to the witness of the Father. And he says, The Father who sent me, He has borne witness of me. You have neither heard His voice at any time, nor seen His form. Now that is a powerful statement to these Pharisees. They think, remember in their religiosity, they think that they're basing everything on the Mosaic Law and on the Old Testament. That's what they're committed to. They think that they have have cornered the market on God. And Jesus looks to them and He says, God has testified of me. It's a legal, the word martyreo is a term for a legal witness. But you, you Pharisees, have neither heard His voice at any time nor seen His form. Now, the allusion there is to two incidents in the Old Testament. Incident number one is when the Israelites, the Exodus generation, has exited Egypt and they are at Mount Sinai. And they are all gathered, all one and a half to two and a half million of them, are gathered at the base of the mountain, and God begins to speak audibly to everyone. They hear the voice from the mountain. I mean, this is not some subjective internal witness. This is an objective sound that they're hearing, the very voice of God. If they had had their tape recorder with them, they could have tape recorded the sound of God's voice. And they hated it. It caused great fear. It was, remember, that's self-authenticating. I mean, when they heard the voice of God, they knew that was God. God did not have to say, now, I'm going to prove to you that this is me. When God spoke, they knew it, and they were afraid. The same thing happens with Isaiah. When God speaks, people know it. They can accept it, or they can reject it. 
But they don't need validation. They know it deep in their soul. And when God spoke, that rebellious Exodus generation heard His voice. And Jesus is saying the rebellious Exodus generation heard God's voice. You guys haven't. You think you're really something, but you're not as good as the Exodus generation. For they heard the voice of God. And then he says, nor seen his form. And this is a reference to Jacob's wrestling with, the God, with God at Penuel. And when, he, when he, uh, <clears throat> the angel of the Lord appeared to him there. So basically what he is saying is that you guys think you are really something. You are the, uh, the heirs of all the Old Testament promises and the patriarchs. And you are the, spiritual bearer, the, the bearers of the spiritual authority here in Israel. And you're, you haven't seen God, you haven't heard God, you have nothing. So he challenges their basic assumption that they are the standard bearers of the Old Testament faith. And then he says, further, you do not have His Word abiding in you. In other words, the truth of God is not abiding in you. Why? You have this expression for, it's a translation of the Greek word gar, which always gives you an explanation, and he says, for gar, or excuse me, looking at the wrong verse, it's hati, it's because, it's the causal form of hati, because, so he's giving the reason, it should be translated, because you do not believe him who sent me, it's very strong, because you do not believe him who sent me, why do they not have the word or understand the truth, because they do not believe in God the Father whom he sent. What a challenge. What a slap in the face to the Pharisees. He's saying the reason you don't believe me is the Word is not in you. The Old Testament, Moses' Word, isn't in you. Because you do not believe in God the Father. Period. Now they're trying to convince and have convinced themselves that they're the great standard bearers of truth. Now Jesus goes on in this argument. Now this is a reference... I want to stop a minute. This is a reference back to what John has said back at the beginning of the epistle. In John 1.4, we read, In Him, that is in, in the Logos, Jesus, was life. And the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not comprehend, comprehend it. Throughout the Scriptures, you have this analogy of God and the Lord and truth to light. And this light is penetrating. It shines in the darkness. It is related to the very life of God as the very ultimate source of everything in life. You see, we have a concept of truth that is based on autonomous. An autonomous concept that there's something hanging out here called truth. And that we can appeal to this. Here's the unbeliever here and the believer here. And we can appeal to this autonomous concept of truth as the ultimate standard in the universe. Except what Scripture says is that God is the ultimate standard in the universe. And truth is what God says it is. He is the ultimate reference point in the universe. And this is the problem in our argumentation when we buy into the unbeliever's view of reality and try to appeal to, to an autonomous or independent concept of truth, then we are denying the fact that God is the ultimate reference point in the universe. 
to what does God appeal, to what truth does God appeal to to validate Himself? There's nothing higher than God. That's the point of all of this. And they have rejected God, so they want some other standard of truth. Now, the Scripture says that God's life is such that it is light. And that light continuously shines in the universe. All human knowledge, therefore, is based ultimately on the light that God shines in the universe. This is called, part of this is part of common grace, and that goes to every believer and unbeliever alike. So what John is saying here, it's a very sophisticated implication. He is saying that all human knowledge is based on logic. Even lang- all language is based on logic. All human knowledge is based on logic, and, lo- and, and logic and language have their origin in God. So the very denial of God presupposes, even though the unbeliever would deny it, his very denial presupposes the existence of God. Let me say it another way. Talking is based on logic. Whenever we talk, we use propositions. We make statements. Now, any kind, any, there, there's different kinds of statements. There are questions. That's not a proposition. It's a question. Uh, there are uh, descriptions. That's not a proposition. A proposition, by definition, is any statement that can be validated or falsified. So if I say the sky is blue, that can be validated or falsified. That makes it a proposition. Whenever you use any sort of proposition, it is by definition either true or false. Any proposition presupposes truth or falsity. To make any proposition, you are presupposing truth or falsity. The very concept of truth Falsity, right or wrong, implies absolutes. So if you say something is right or something is wrong, you are implying that there is a standard of absolute. Now, I just love it when, you, when I talk with an agnostic. An agnostic, by definition, is someone who does not believe that you can know anything for sure. So the proposition the agnostic sets forth is, well, you know, I'm not an atheist. I just don't think you can know anything for sure. Well, do you know that for sure? <laughs> He's honk. He says, no, you can't know that for sure. Then you say, okay, well, maybe there's some things we can have certain knowledge about, so let's start there and see where we can go. Where we can go. Now, if he says, yeah, I know that for sure, then he's just contradicted himself. So, he knows that for sure. And it's the same thing with a person, and we see this today in postmodern thought, is that there are no absolutes. Everything is culturally relative. There are no absolutes. Well, is that an absolute? It's an inherently illogical position. The unbeliever cannot live consistently upon the assumptions of his own position. The unbeliever espouses evolution and that ultimate reality in the universe is based upon pure, raw chance and chaos. 
But he can't live that way. Even the evolutionary scientist, when he goes in the laboratory, in order to have any kind of scientific validation, he has to have repeated conclusions and evidence in the in the laboratory. It has to be repeatable. That that is based upon the assumption of absolutes. Now, this is the kind of argument that Jesus is using. He's not backing off and saying, okay, I'm going to defend my position and prove it's true. What I'm going to do is I'm going to prove you guys can't live consistently on your assumptions. And your assumption is that I'm wrong because I've healed this guy on the Sabbath and I'm violating Moses. And frankly, you guys don't believe Moses. You don't believe in God. You've rejected the Scriptures. And you have no basis whatsoever to accuse me of anything in relationship to to the law of Moses. He's turned the whole argument on top of them and cut their, the ground out from under them. Isn't it great? And he doesn't cave in to their human viewpoint basis in order to try to prove who he is. He's saying, I self, my words are self-authenticated. Look at verse 39. He says, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is these that bear witness of me. See, this is the issue. The Pharisees are attacking Jesus because he's violating the Sabbath and the Mosaic law. And their underlying assumption is that they understand the Scriptures. They're the ones in Jewish society who really know the Scriptures. And they are the defenders of the Scriptures. But Jesus said, if you really knew the Scriptures... That's what bears witness of me. And because you're rejecting me, you're rejecting the Scriptures, and you have no foundation. Jesus is not backing off. Jesus is really engaged in a nose-to-nose confrontation. This is not the meek and mild Jesus who goes along to get along and isn't everything wonderful. This, he is engaged in a very sophisticated debate and he's not holding any punches and he's coming out with some one-twos here that, are, that create such antagonism with the Pharisees that as we've already seen, it is this whole scenario and these events that caused them, in, back in verse 18, for this cause therefore the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he was not only breaking the Sabbath but claiming to be equal with God. In other words, the result of this whole interchange is they are dead set to kill him. He has really angered them. Their anger has gone off the charts. Let's look at verse 40 to 42. And you are unwilling to come to me that you may have life. What's the issue there? They're unwilling. The issue is not they don't have enough evidence. Folks, the unbeliever is always saying, I need more evidence. What Scripture is saying is you've got 2,000% the evidence you need to trust Christ. You don't need any more. The issue is not a lack of evidence. The issue is not a lack of logic. The issue is your volition. The issue is you have rejected God. This is Romans 1, 18 and 19. That they are suppressing the truth of God. Let me turn over there real quick. You don't need to turn there. But let me read that to you to remind you of the importance of of that of that chapter and those verses. Romans one eighteen, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress literally you have a causal participle here, it should be translated, because they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. It's not because they don't know the truth, it's because they know it and they suppress it in unrighteousness. 
And he goes on in verse 19, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. In other words, the Scripture says there's, more, there's an abundance of evidence out there to the existence of God, and they have rejected. The issue is volition. It is not evidence. It's not experience. It's not logic. Jesus is saying the issue is you are unwilling to come to Me. You have all the Scriptures. The Scripture testifies to Me and you reject that. Verse 41. I do not receive glory from men. In other words, he's not basing his appeal on an autonomous standard developed for man. He's recognizing he's the ultimate reference point in the universe. And when he speaks, it, gives self, it is self-authenticating. He says, I do not receive glory from men, but I know you that you do not have the love of God in yourself. The Pharisees were were proud people. They prided themselves on the fact that they loved God more than anybody else. I mean, they prayed seven times a day. They went to the temple three times a day. They were the ones who loved God. And Jesus said, you've rejected the Scripture. You do not have the love of God in yourselves. Verse 43, I have come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. If another shall come in his own name, you will receive him. Now, Remember, the name always indicates character and essence. I have come in, the, in, in accord or consistent with the essence of my Father. But if another, that is someone else, comes in his own name, and this is a reference to the Antichrist or a false Messiah, you will receive him. How can you believe, verse 44, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God. The question here he's asking is, how can you come to a position of faith if your whole focus is on getting glory from one another through approbation lust, satisfied by your obedience to, to your legalistic demands? How can you ever come to faith because at the very point of God consciousness, you have rejected God? That's the, that's the thrust of his argument in verse 44. Because they have already operated on negative volition and rejected the truth, they are not able to believe. That's the point. Volition, positive volition, precedes faith. And their problem is that they have started from a position, they have read the Scriptures, they have rejected it, so they're operating on negative volition, so they can never have faith. They can never accept Christ or His claims because their starting point is a rejection of the Scriptures. So Jesus clearly states that the Scriptures are the final authority. Number one, He's had the witness of God the Father. And number two, now He's shifting to the witness of the Scriptures. He says, do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. In other words, you're the ones who have outlined all the mandates in the Old Testament, in the Mosaic Law. You're the ones who are so concerned about obedience to the Mosaic Law. And so Moses is the one who's accusing you. He's not accusing me. I'm not the one violating the Sabbath. You are. You are the one who has rejected the witness of the Scripture. The one who accuses you 
is Moses in whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. This is the same thing that Luke said. This is the consistency in the Gospel. This is the same thing Luke records with Lazarus and the rich man. Abraham told the rich man, it doesn't matter how much evidence they have, if they don't believe Moses and the prophets, they're not going to believe all the evidence that you amass in the world because the issue is volition. Jesus said, if you believe Moses, you'd believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my word? And he's telling them, you don't even believe Moses. You're all caught up in all of your human viewpoint traditions of religion, but you have rejected the very essence of what is taught in the Pentateuch. Because what the Pentateuch taught foreshadowed the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything in the Pentateuch portrays what will happen in the first advent. In the Mosaic Law, you have all of the ritual in the temple, in the tabernacle, the sacrifices, the Passover, as we saw last Sunday in Easter, the Passover, all of the symbolism, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus Christ is a fulfillment of the type of the Passover Lamb. And everything from the uh, sacrifices, from the bread, the table of showbread representing Jesus as the bread of life, the candlestick that represents Jesus as the light of the world, and the uh, Ark of the Covenant, the um, Ark of Incense, which represents His continuous intercession for us, and the Ark of the Covenant, which uh, portrays His propitiatory work on the cross. All of that pictures the person and work of Jesus Christ, and they're blind to it, and they ignore it, not because there's not enough evidence, but because their starting point is negative volition. And so the thing for us to understand is that our confidence does not reside in argumentation. It doesn't reside in evidence. It resides in the Word of God. For the Word of God is alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. It's the Word of God that makes these things clear to people. And they can it. But the Word of God has its own self-validating authority. And so if you explain the Gospel to somebody and they reject it, it's not because you don't know enough. It's because they have made a decision to reject the truth. The responsibility is theirs. Your responsibility is to make the Gospel as clear as you can. God the Holy Spirit will override any mistakes you make. He will make it clear to the mind of the individual. It is God the Holy Spirit who makes the Gospel clear to them so that they can understand it and then they have to accept it or reject it. It's not up to us to win an argument, to convince somebody the truth, and to marshal all the evidence. That's not the point in witnessing. The point in witnessing is to make it clear. You see, the same thing happens when you invite people to church. The issue is not, are they going to understand this, that somehow they don't have the background, that they don't know all the theological terminology. I've seen people with an IQ just a couple of notches above room temperature walk in, but they're positive to the truth. And they come in, and, and even, even people with a hierarchy, I've seen people walk in and they say, you know, I didn't know there was that much to know about the Bible. I won't come back because I really want to know the Bible, and this guy seems to know something about the Scriptures. And I want to learn it. And I had no idea that the, there was even close to this much that could be learned from the Bible. So they come back because they're positive. Other people come in and they hear somebody teach the Bible, and they say, I don't want that. I want to go down the street here where I'm just going to hear a lot of music and, and feel good. When I go home, I can say, oh, wasn't it good to be at church today? I just feel so uplifted. See, they don't want to know God. They just want to have, a, have an experience. 
And what's going to happen is when, if you bring people to church, one of two things is going to happen. They're either going to respond to the teaching of the Word and say, yes, I really want to know the truth. And, and I may not understand everything that was said, but I know that, that somehow the truth is being spoken here and I want to learn it. And it's going to take time. Other people are going to come and they're going to say, well, I don't want that. And you never see them again. It has nothing to do with intelligence. It has nothing to do with how, how much vocabulary I use or the theological concepts we're covering or anything like that. It has to do with their positive volition and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And our confidence needs to be in the Word of God and the Spirit of God and not cave in to the pressures of human viewpoint reasoning that what attracts people is all these whistles and bells and the dog and pony shows and everything else that are trotted out to somehow make the gospel more attractive. The issue is not that. The issue is that when the truth is presented, people who are positive respond, people who are negative reject it. But the issue is volition. The issue is not our ability to make it clear, to defend it, to marshal evidence, or any of these other factors that people tend to rely upon. It is the Word of God and the truth of doctrine that carries its own authority. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank You for the opportunity we've had to look at Your Word because we do know that Your Word is powerful. It is Your Word that authenticates itself. And You have said that Your Word will not go forth from You void, that it will accomplish that which You have intended. And Father, we thank You that we have had the opportunity this morning to look into Your Word, that we have the freedom to do so in this nation, because we know that it is Your Word that is what You use to sanctify us. Jesus said, Sanctify them in truth. Thy Word is truth. So Father, we dedicate our lives to the knowledge of truth, because we truly want to know how to, how to worship You and how You want us to live, that we may glorify You in our lives. Now, Father, if there's anyone here this morning who's uncertain of their salvation, who's never put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone for their salvation, that right now they would take the opportunity to do so. It's very simple. All they have to do is pray to you and say in the quietness of their own soul, Father, I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sins. That's all that's necessary. No works are involved. It doesn't involve baptism, good works, joining a church, or any other religious activity. It's a simple matter of faith alone in Christ alone. The Scripture says, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Now, Father, we thank you again for this time and pray that we can remember these things and reflect upon them and they will give us tremendous confidence as we witness to those who need to hear the Gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.